Well, good morning, church. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. As always, if you forgot your Bible or don't have a Bible, always feel free to grab one out in the lobby or in the back uh, on your way in. We'd love for you to have God's Word in front of you as we continue to preach through the gospel according to Mark. And we'll be in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 26 this morning. Well, I don't know if you have ever thought about robbing an ATM machine, uh, but if you have, let me tell you how not to do it. Well, wow, you guys really got engaged with that. All right, that, that makes me a little nervous, all right? Um, uh, but you see, I was reading a story about these two burglars, and they were trying to break into an ATM machine. Now, they didn't have a lot of experience with it. Uh, they mainly had just watched action movies, right? So uh, based upon what they had learned from the movies, uh, they figured that a blowtorch and a crowbar would do the trick. Uh, which I think most of us, after watching, you know, some action movies and things, I think most of us, who hopefully we haven't really thought this through too much uh, about how to break into an ATM, but I think most of us would say, okay, yeah, those are probably two tools that would do uh, the trick, right? And so uh, they're thinking, you know, they're going to take the blowtorch and just kind of burn through the hinges, just kind of melt them away, and then pop it open with the crowbar. But unfortunately... Or I guess fortunately, depending on who you're rooting for in this story, right, uh, depending on that, right, what video surveillance showed was that when they started to use the blowtorch on the hinges, the hinges did not just magically melt and fall off like in the movies, but instead the blowtorch on the hinges actually welded the hinges shut. And they, in a sense, had made the ATM even, even more secure by their work on it. And they hung their heads and walked away in shame. Things did not go the way they had planned or the way they had thought they would go. Now, that's sort of a silly example, but I think you and I can somewhat relate Hopefully not in regards to robbing an ATM machine. You should not go do that. Uh, but in regards to things not going the way we planned or the way we thought they would go. For example, when I first went to college, I started out as a social studies education major, quickly switched to science education, and I was planning on being a high school science teacher. And then I found out that I actually don't like high schoolers, right? And so things didn't necessarily go according to plan or the way that I thought they would play out when I entered college. And things even this morning did not go the way that I had originally planned. So I had originally planned to get here a little early to be able to review my notes, prepare for uh, uh, the sermon a little bit more, and I went to start my car and nothing. The car would not start and so dad had to come pick me up, which I was grateful for. It gave me a little bit extra time just to, uh, you know, be frustrated and think, oh my goodness, things are not going the way I thought they would this morning. And then I walk in, and uh, uh, first, like, the, the lights up here aren't working. They're like flashing strobe lights. That's why Seth and Alyssa are in the dark, uh, because otherwise it would be like a strobe light on them. Uh, uh, Seth broke a string on the guitar, um, which actually that usually happens, so that wasn't that, uh, you know... Uh, weird. Uh, but then you walk in here, and there is an obscene amount of glitter in here. 
right? And if you guys know me, that is like in the top three of things I am fearful about or worried about is glitter. And so my first thought when I walked in was that like, we have to cancel church. We, we, we have to cancel. Like we can't let people in here. Like you, by you coming in here, do you realize what has happened? You will have glitter on you for the rest of your life. It's a, I mean, I'm sorry, but it's game over. It's like there's no getting rid of that. I don't know what happened in here yesterday, but something bad happened. And, and, uh, and so my second thought was then, okay, like we have to destroy the building. We have to just burn it. We have to burn it down. We don't own it, but I think we just have to destroy it. Like, we have to move. We've been praying and saying, God, when should we go? You know, when should we move from this location? I, I think it, this was a sign. Uh, I'm, still, I'm still a little emotional about it. It's still raw. Someone's going to have to talk me down after the service, okay? Uh, but, but needless to say, things even this morning did not go according to plan or according to the way I thought they should go. And many times in life, right, we have a vision for what our life is going to be like. Like, if we just do this and this, then we should get this, and it should result in this, right? Like, if we get good grades, then we should get into a good college, and we should get a good job, and then we should make good money, and we should have a good and happy life with the white picket fence and all of that, right? Or we even do this with our faith, our spiritual life. Like, we think if we just read our Bible enough and go to church enough and we just have enough faith, then God will have to bless us with material possessions and physical health and an abundance of happiness. But what often happens is that life does not go the way we planned or the way we thought it would. Someone gets sick. We don't get the job we thought we were going to get. A spouse or a friend deeply wounds us in a way that seems unrepairable. And often our plans get frustrated and we cry out like, this is not going the way I planned. This is not going the way I thought it would. And this morning, we're picking up the story of Jesus and his disciples in the final day of Jesus' life before his death and resurrection. And leading up to this point, Jesus has been telling his disciples that he is going to be betrayed, that he is going to be arrested, and that he's going to suffer and be killed. But we've seen all throughout Mark that the disciples are not getting it. Like they're not, they're, he's telling them, but they're not getting it because they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, but they're still envisioning a, a political and a military rescuer and hero that's going to come and establish the kingdom in the way they think a kingdom should be established. And so Jesus keeps telling them, hey, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed. But they keep assuming when they get to Jerusalem that they're going to overthrow the Romans, that Jesus will take the throne, and that they'll be elevated to positions of authority. And so now we're getting into these final hours. We entered the Garden of Gethsemane, these final hours, and we see the disciples are realizing that things are not going the way they had planned. Things are not going the way they thought they would. And in the midst of the panicking and despairing disciples, we're going to see Jesus, even in the midst of suffering and being in anguish and agony, 
He's going to show us how to pursue God's plans and purposes, even when life is not what we thought it would be. Jesus is going to help us understand how we pursue God's plans and purposes, even when things do not go the way we planned. Are we ready? All right, our passage starts with them singing a hymn, and it ends with a guy running away naked. Hopefully that will not be the case this morning. Mark 14, verse 26. Let's go. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Okay, they have left the upper room. They've left the Last Supper. They've gone to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus once again tells them that they're all going to fall away. Not just that he thinks they will all fall away, not just that they will probably fall away, but he actually says that it is written by the prophet Zechariah that you will all fall away. But it will be a temporary falling away, and after he is raised, he's going to go before them to Galilee. That's what he tells them. Now, what Jesus is, is telling them, it, it again, it goes against how the disciples are planning for all this to go down. So guess who speaks up? Our boy Peter. That's right. Peter says, even though they all fall away, I will not. P Peter here is forgetting some wisdom literature. And so we interrupt this program to bring you some wisdom literature from Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Jesus then says, no, Peter, tonight you are going to deny me three times. And still, instead of receiving these words from Jesus, Peter is still like, no way, that's not how I planned for this to go down. You see, Peter is going to need to be humbled because in his pride, he's not hearing and receiving these words from Jesus. And we live in a day where it seems like almost every week we hear of a well-known pastor or a celebrity Christian that leaves the faith or has a moral failure that disqualifies them from ministry. And many of us, when we hear these things, we pridefully turn up our noses to them and say things like, well, it was only a matter of time. Or I can't believe they would do that. I would never do that. Many of us, we have the same heart as Peter. Even if they all fall away, I will not. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. No, our, our first response when we hear of someone falling away should be first to pray for them. And then we should also pray for our own hearts. For it is only by the grace of God that any persevere in the faith. Look back at Mark 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. 
And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took him with Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Okay, I think we can understand and relate with the panic and the despair of the disciples. Because what's going to happen in the garden on this night is not going to go according to their plan. But this is going to go according to God's plan. And Jesus, who is God in the flesh, he knows the plan. He knows why he came to earth. He's been telling us he's going to be arrested and killed. And so this isn't catching him off guard at all. But our text says that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he even opens up his heart to Peter, James, and John and says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. In Luke's account, we learn that as Jesus, as he prayed, he was in such agony that his sweat became like drops of blood. This is what is called hematohydrosis. It's an extremely rare condition when the body is on such great physical or emotional stress that literally uh, there's so much stress that the, the, the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands, they burst and they rupture and you literally sweat drops of blood. Like if you think your life is so stressful and that Jesus doesn't understand... Think, think again, okay? He was under such emotional stress and anguish and agony that blood vessels were rupturing. And in Luke's account, we see that an angel is then sent to strengthen him to probably even ensure that he's not going to bleed out right there in the garden. But why is he so distressed or troubled? Like this isn't catching him off guard, right? And we, we, we know of stories of, of many people, many Christians that have been martyred for their faith, many people that have been facing execution, uh, but they haven't been in this much distress, right? Like, like so many martyrs that we hear about, like they're not sweating drops of blood. So what is going on here? Why is Jesus in such great distress and agony? And I think we can understand this by looking at what he asked the Father in his prayer. He says, remove this cup from me. Well, what does he mean here? Well, you see, we learn from the Old Testament that the cup is a metaphor for the wrath of God being poured out on human evil. The wrath of God being poured out on human evil. Jesus is not in such agony because of the physical pain that he's going to endure with his floggings and his crucifixion. He knows that's coming. And even though that is going to be horrific, that is going to be awful, uh, that is not why he is in such great agony and distress. No, he is in agony because he knows on the cross he's going to experience the full force of the wrath of God. And think about this, for every sinner that Christ died, he took the eternal wrath that they deserved. 
He took it upon himself. And he's here in the garden. He's agonizing, knowing what he must do, and yet being distressed and troubled by it, that the wrath is going to be poured out on him. And for a a temporary time, he's going to be separated from the perfect communion with the Father that he had experienced uh, in all eternity past. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, Christ's Agony, he writes this. We should have this up here on the screen. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowing of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. There are two things that render Christ's love wonderful that he should be willing to endure sufferings that were so great and that he should be willing to endure them to make atonement for wickedness that was so great. Right? There are two things that render Christ's love so wonderful, that, that he should be willing to endure sufferings that were so great. And number two, that he should be willing to endure them to make atonement for wickedness that was so great. Like this, this, this wrath of God that's going to be poured out on him, this isn't going to surprise him. It's not going to be like, like he's, he's coming here in the garden and he's seen what he must face and what he must go through and he's agonizing. And for us to understand how wonderful the love of Christ is, we have to understand the agony and the suffering that he endured on the cross and in the garden. It's a wonderful love that is beyond all understanding and comparison. And we're going to come back in a little bit and look at Jesus' prayer a little closer to understand how Jesus, even though he is so distressed and troubled, how he's still going to pursue God's plan and purposes. But let's keep reading, and I want us to see how the disciples react as things start going not the way they thought they would go. All right, because Jesus, when he's distraught, he goes deeper into prayer. But let's contrast that to how the disciples react. So look, at, look back at verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. I mean, here is Jesus. He has just poured out his heart to his closest friends. He's distraught, he's distressed, he's asked his friends to be watchful and prayerful, and he comes to them and he finds them asleep. He wakes them up, tells them to be watchful and prayerful, he goes back to pray, and he comes back and he finds them asleep. He wakes them up, he tells them to be watchful and prayerful, and a third time he goes to pray, and he comes back and he finds them asleep. And we're like, like, what's going on here, guys? Like, come on, you can't stay awake for one hour? Come on, 
Like, do you really just not care about what's happening here? Do you really not love Jesus? Do you really not care what he's going through? Are you just being lazy and indifferent? Is this undiagnosed narcolepsy? Like what, you know, my thoughts are all over. What's happening here? Why do they keep falling asleep? And Luke's account, it gives a little bit more insight into their sleep. In Luke chapter 22, verse 45. It says, And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. They're not sleeping because they're indifferent. They're not sleeping because they don't care about Jesus. They're sleeping because they are experiencing sorrow and despair. Their their spirit is willing, not referring to the Holy Spirit, but their spirit, their inner being. They want to be prayerful and watchful, but their flesh is weak. They are sorrowful. Sorrow, Sorrow is a deep sadness or distress that usually stems from some form of loss. Jesus is sorrowful because of the impending temporary loss of communion with the Father. The disciples are sorrowful over the loss of how they thought the kingdom of God was going to be established on earth. Like this is not going the way they thought it would. They've experienced a loss and now they are sorrowful. Jesus is telling them that he's going to be betrayed. They're all going to fall away. Jesus is going to be killed. And in their sorrow and in their despair, they sleep. Jesus shows us a healthy way to deal with sorrow by going to prayer. And the disciples, instead of going to prayer, they go to sleep. You see, many times in our sorrow and our our despair, uh, a lot of times our sorrow and despair will grow as the distance between the desires of our heart and the circumstances of our life as that increases, right? As that gap between our desires and our actual circumstances, as that gets larger, usually our sorrow and despair increases as well. The, desi- the, the disciples, they desired, right, power and influence and prestige, and yet their circumstances is, were not going that direction. They saw this gap getting farther and farther apart, and they grew more sorrowful. Every hour that is playing out, they're growing more sorrowful because their circumstances are not matching their desires. And many times, church, we desire to pursue God's plans and purposes. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. And as things continue to go not the way we planned, we can become more and more sorrowful and despairing. Now, listen, getting sleep at night and taking an occasional nap is a good thing. What I'm warning against is a spiritual slumber. You see, when we despair, the temptation is to just check out. 
right? Be- it, it, the temptation is to just become stagnant in our growth in Christ, to just hit the snooze button on our growth with Christ. The temptation when we are sorrowful and despairing is to just become complacent about our discipleship process with ourselves and others. When life doesn't go the way we thought, we can become sorrowful, and instead of allowing our sorrow to push us into more prayer, we let our sorrow push us into spiritual a spiritual slumber. And we numb the sorrow. We choose to numb the sorrow with food or with drink or with Netflix or Facebook or pornography or another form of addiction that just gives us some temporary pleasure and numbing effect. We just want relief from our sorrow. So we just want to go into a spiritual slumber. It's not wrong to feel, to feel sorrowful, church. Jesus felt sorrow. But is our sorrow putting us into a spiritual slumber and causing us to just check out and to treat the sorrow with something other than God? When things don't go the way you planned, are you prone to slumber? Or maybe that's not you. Maybe you're not hitting the snooze button. Maybe you're grabbing your sword. Look back at Mark 14. We're going to see a different reaction. Mark 14, verse 42. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out, us, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Okay, Judas shows up with a crowd, some of the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. They've got some soldiers and servants. They've, they've, got, they've got the mob, right? They've got clubs and swords. Judas betrays Jesus by, with a kiss, and they surround Jesus. They seize him to arrest him. Verse 47 then says that one that stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, Mark doesn't name the person who draws the sword, but we know from other accounts that it's Peter. And we're all like, yeah, we figured it was Peter. That sounds like a Peter thing to do, right? Jesus had told him what's going to happen. Jesus had instructed him to pray. Peter does not pray. He sleeps, and then he tries to take matters into his own hands. Like, like cutting off an ear is going to usher in the kingdom of God. Peter is right now operating in his own strength. He's essentially pursuing the kingdom without the king. And so when the distance between the desires of your heart and the circumstances of your life, when the distance grows apart, maybe you don't passively check out and snooze. Maybe you reach for your sword, and maybe you're going to take matters into your own hands. 
Maybe you are prone to operating in your own strength and attempting to be self-sufficient. And this is a problem that we see both inside and outside the church. Outside the church, in our current cultural climate, uh, it's been permeated by secularism. All right. Now, Mark Sayers, who's a pastor and sort of like a cultural commentator on some of these things, he defines secularism as the attempt to create a system for human flourishing in which the presence of God is absent. And listen, secularism is the water you swim in. It's all around in our current culture. And every message that you hear or every teaching that you hear or every post that you see, if it's coming from someone who does not understand that, in Jesus, that Jesus holds everything in the universe together, while there might be some good wisdom that we can draw from it, you must understand that there is this underlying influence of secularism, of a system that is attempting to achieve human flourishing in which the presence of God is absent. However, people are starting to see, both Christians and non-Christians are finding, that this actually doesn't work. Human flourishing without the presence of God. We're starting to see it actually doesn't work. We thought 50 years ago that if people were just more educated or more prosperous or had more health care or were more tolerant or were more free from religious institutions, we thought that humanity would flourish. And so our culture then has been pursuing some good things. We've been pursuing things like justice and peace and caring for the poor and enabling people to, to rise up into and to prosper. And yet what we've seen is that we have progressed towards all of those things and yet Right now, people are more depressed, anxious, sorrowful, and suicidal than ever before. In the last three years, our life expectancy has started to go down despite having more access to health care and more access to food and more access to education than, than in the history of our world. Why? Like, why are we starting to see this isn't working? Because we've essentially been pursuing the kingdom without the king. And the pursuit of the kingdom without the king will never work. It will fail. But this isn't just happening outside the church. This is happening inside the church as well. You see, uh, as we see the gap between the desires of our churches and the circumstances or the realities of our churches, as we see that gap grow, uh, as we've seen it get bigger, instead of pursuing God's presence more, we've actually taken matters into our own hands and operated by our own strength. And so we've pursued more pragmatic approaches to church or practical ways to church, more attractable ways to church to try to take matters into our own hands instead of pursuing God's presence more in our churches. And we've become just as guilty as our culture of trying to pursue the kingdom without the king. So how are you prone to respond when the desires of your heart and the circumstances of your life don't match up? What about you? Like, do you, are you more prone to check out, to numb the sorrow, and go to sleep? 
Or do you grab the sword and try to pursue the kingdom in your own strength without the king? Or maybe that's not how you respond. Maybe you respond by running away in fear. Look back at Mark 14 as we read the last couple of verses. Mark 14, verse 50. And they all left him and fled, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. It's kind of an awkward ending to the passage. We, we don't know who this young man was. Some speculate that it was actually John Mark who's, who's writing this. It's thought that he, was, he would be a young man at the time and that even it was possibly at his, uh, John Mark's house that they had the Last Supper. So we don't know for sure. People speculate who this, who this was. But what we do know is that all the disciples flee, they all run, and there's a young man that's so fearful and so anxious that the authorities seize him by his garment that he's wearing, but he gets away and he runs away naked. You see, when things don't go the way we planned, we can often become fearful and anxious. We can fear that life has spun out of control. We can fear that God isn't really in control anymore. Or we can fear that God just doesn't really care about what's happening in our lives. And when the gap between the desires of our heart and the circumstances of our life, when that gap grows, we can respond with fear and anxiety and we can run. We can run from what God is calling us to. We can run from relationships and isolate ourselves so that we'll never be hurt again. We can run from difficult circumstances and pursue comfort and safety at all costs. What are you prone to do, church, when things don't go according to your plans? Do you slumber in your sorrow? Do you grab your sword and operate in your own strength? Or do you run in fear and anxiety? And is there a better way? Someone say, Jesus is the way. All right, there we go. All right, let's go. I don't know why I expected you to say that, but I was ready. All right. You see, Jesus, when he told his disciples that they would all fall away and that he would be betrayed into the hands of sinners and that he would die and rise again, do you know what truth he was telling them? Do you know what underlying truth he was speaking? He was telling them that no evil scheme of the enemy and no failure of humanity can stop the plans and purposes of God. No evil scheme of the enemy and no failure of humanity can stop the plans and purposes of God. That is good news, church. And although what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane wasn't according to the disciples' plan, it was according to God's plan. And so what does Jesus do when his heart is distraught and the circumstances of the upcoming cup of God's wrath are upon him? What does he do? He goes to enjoy the presence of the Father in prayer. That's what he does. And look what he prays. Look back at Mark 14, verse 36. He said... Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
he calls God the Father, Abba. Abba is the Aramaic word for my father, my dad, my daddy. It's a term of intimacy. It's a term of trust. It's a term of affection. It would have been unheard of in that day for the Jews to call God Abba, Father. But Jesus prays this. And not only does Jesus pray this, but we learn in the book of Romans, as Paul is writing to the Romans, he instructs that all believers can pray like this. In Romans 8, verse 15, we'll have it up on the screen. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Church, if we can call God Abba, Father, what have we to fear? Now, I know that not everyone has had a great earthly father, uh, but don't let your earthly father define your heavenly father for you. Our God is a good and a faithful and a loving and a trustworthy father. And Jesus prays, Abba, Father. And then he goes on to say, all things are possible for you. All things are possible for you. Like, try praying that for an hour straight and just see what happens to your despair or your self-sufficiency or your anxiety. Like, not only do we have a God who is a good and loving Father, but He's also completely sovereign and powerful. All things are possible for Him. And so when there's a gap between the desires of our heart and the circumstances of our life, where do we go? We go to God in prayer. We pray to our Abba, Father, who all things are possible for. And when his fatherhood and his sovereignty and his power are prayerfully meditated upon, yes, the circumstances of our life might change, but but ultimately and definitely the desires of our heart will change, and we will see that only then we will be able to pray like Jesus prayed, not what I will, but what you will. You can really only pray that if you understand God as your father. And you can really only pray that if you believe he is sovereign and all things are possible for him. And as we conclude this morning, we must understand how the Garden of Gethsemane fits into the big picture of God's redemption. You see, the garden should remind us of another garden. For it was the Garden of Eden that our great-great-great-grandfather Adam, he essentially by his actions said to God, not your will, but my will be done. He did not submit in obedience to the Father's plans. He stood complacently by in a spiritual slumber while Eve was deceived. He ran away from God, naked and afraid, and he tried to take things in his own hands and by sowing fig leaves to cover his shame. And by his disobedience... Humanity fell into sin, and every son and daughter of Adam and Eve ever since has had a propensity to say, not your will, but my will. 
The state of our hearts before receiving Christ was one of a rebel. We wanted to be God of our universe. We wanted to build a kingdom without the king. But God. But God. He put on flesh so that there could be a descendant of Adam who would perfectly obey and submit to the will of the Father in the garden. Who even though he was sweating drops of blood, he said, not my will, but your will be done. And it is because of the obedience of Christ that we can now, by grace through faith in him, be saved, not because of our righteousness or our rightness with God, but because of his. Romans chapter 5, verse 19, it says, For as by the one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, speaking of Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Jesus is not only our example, but he's also the one who by his obedience, he has freed us and he has, he has enabled us to obey and submit to the will of the Father. So now when things don't go the way that we thought or the way that we had planned, we don't have to slip into a complacent, sorrowful sleep. We don't have to take things into our own hands and rely on our own strength. And we don't have to run out of fear and anxiety. No, now because of Jesus, God's plans can be pursued by God's people by enjoying God's presence in prayer. I'll say that a few more times. God's plans can be pursued by God's people by enjoying God's presence in prayer. Our sorrow no longer has to put us to sleep because our Savior is acquainted with sorrow. In fact, he's even called a man of sorrows who took on our sorrows, not so our sorrows could just be numbed or forgotten about, but so that our sorrows could be healed by enjoying God's presence in prayer. God's plans can be pursued by God's people by enjoying God's presence in prayer. We no longer have to operate in our own strength because our Savior said that his grace is sufficient. And therefore, we can boast all the more gladly that, yes, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is still very weak so that the power of Christ may rest upon us as we enjoy the presence of God in prayer. God's plans can be pursued by God's people by enjoying God's presence in prayer. We no longer have to respond to life out of fear and anxiety. For we have a Savior who showed us his perfect and wonderful love by taking the cup of God's wrath that we deserved. And therefore, as we enjoy God's presence in prayer, his perfect love casts out our fear. God's plans can be pursued by God's people by enjoying God's presence in prayer. I think we need to pray. Let's pray.